sundry times and in a diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom we have appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto a son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, have anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old, have done for garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make mine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Again, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Opportunity our worship by singing hymn number 110. Go what mattress condescension the eternal God displays. Hymn 110.
Let's pray together. Your most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks and praise for another Lord's Day. Thank you again, Lord, that we have the liberty to come to a place of worship. We thank you, Lord, that you've preserved these liberties to us in this day and generation. And Lord, we thank you again for your marvellous love toward us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come through his name and through his merit and through his work to that throne where we beseech you to incline your ear to our prayers and that, Lord, you be pleased to accept our praise and our worship as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you, Father, that you are a great God, a God who displays his greatness through all creation, a God who is boundless in his works and his ways, a God who is infinite in his wonder and awe, a God full of majesty and splendor, a God who is holy and righteous and just. We thank you that we can call you our God. We can call you our Father who art in heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that as a Father you have pity toward us. You saw our need as we were lost in sin, as we were headbound for eternal destruction in your marvellous grace. You plucked us, as it were, from the fire burning and brought us to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for choosing us, even before the foundation of the world. We thank you, Lord, in the course of heaven, the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted together to do a work of saving grace, to bring about a redemption. And we thank you that the Son of God even condescended to come to this world, born of a baby in Bethlehem, ministered, all those years, without sin, without fault. And we thank you, Lord, that he even went to death upon a cross called Calvary. And we bless you for that cross. We glory in the cross. It is our hope. It is our joy as we behold the Saviour shedding his lifeblood <clears throat> for the sin of his people. But we thank you we don't worship a God who is dead and buried, but we worship one who sits at God's right hand, one who intercedes for his people, perfecting our poor and feeble prayers. And we thank you again for the person and the work of a saviour. We thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to his majesty and to his glory. Lord, the world despises him, the world has rejected him, but by your grace... We gladly claim him to be our saviour and to be our Lord. And so tonight, Father, we seek to glorify him in what we do here, in a meditation upon your word. May he be uplifted, magnified and glorified. We do, Lord, again pray for one another. We pray for this church and like-minded churches in our county, in our town, in our nation. 
We pray, Lord, a blessing upon the preaching of the word of God, that men and women and boys and girls may come under the sound of it and be convicted of their sin and unrighteousness and would flee to a saviour, that perfect sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, for one another, for difficult days we are going through. Some with illnesses, Lord, some with concerns for loved ones and for family. And so, Lord, we would pray for one another tonight that you may minister to them. Once again, we pray. We do, Lord, pray for members of our family who are strangers to grace, those, Lord, who have rebelled against the truth. Probably, Lord, many have sat under your word since they were young children, yet, Lord, they have turned their backs upon a true and living God. Lord, O oh God, we pray that you would turn them, and turn them to behold the Saviour and his wondrous love toward them. Lord, use whatever means you seem fit and right to draw them back to the Saviour. Pursue them, we pray, with the Holy Spirit, and bring them in to the kingdom of God, we pray. We pray, Lord, for our children and for our grandchildren, that, Lord, you preserve them and protect them. Again, Lord, we pray they may be helped. We pray for their parents as they seek to bring them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord God. May they be granted wisdom and sensitivity and discernment, Lord, in the days in which we live. We pray again, Lord, for your church persecuted around the world. We pray, Lord, that you would undertake for your servants as they are incarcerated for the truth, those, Lord, who are beaten, those, Lord, who are even murdered because they name the name of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help congregations to stand strong and firm on the truth, that, Lord, they may know in the midst of their persecution you are there with them, and that, Lord, you would bless them, uphold them and strengthen them, we pray. We pray, Lord, for those who bringing the word of God to tongues unknown for tribes which never heard the good news of Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, for translators, for those, Lord, who produce Bible versions, that they be helped with wisdom and grace, that, Lord, finances will be available for the printing of the word of God in native tongues. So, Lord, we thank you that we have a Bible in our own tongue, we thank you, Lord, for those men and women who have given their lifeblood to preserve it so that we may enjoy it and come to a knowledge of a true and living God. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray, Lord, that the gospel will prosper in our land. Lord, we see this as the only hope for our nation. Lord, men's plans and schemes have failed. We look upon them, Lord, and they're bankrupt. And we turn to you, O gracious God and Father, as your people turned to you in past days, that you would come and revive your church, that you would come and bring the truth of the word of God to hearts and minds, even to those, Lord, in high positions of authority. Look upon us, we pray, Lord, with mercy. We pray, Lord, to have mercy upon our land and upon the leaders of our nation. O oh Lord our God, to whom else can we turn? We seek you with these big petitions. For Lord, humanly speaking, it seems impossible. But we thank you that you are a God who does the impossible. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this. 
for the honour and glory of the name of God. We pray, Father, that the Spirit of God may come with convicting power and that this nation of ours may be reformed and it may be turned back from its evil and vile ways. And so, Lord, as we come to your words in a moment, we pray a blessing upon it, speak to our hearts and to our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us and build us up in our most precious faith. We thank you for the word. Bless it to us. Again, we pray. We ask these things with forgiveness of our every sin. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 379, please. Behold, the throne of grace, the promise calls us near. 379. again to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 1 God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets having these last days spoken unto us by his son who be appointed heir of all things by him also he made 
the worlds. The last study of the book of Hebrews, we considered um, the great benefits that the the Jewish believers um, enjoyed when they came to know Christ as their Messiah. But those benefits were questioned, and so hence the book of Hebrews was written to encourage them to press on and to stand fast. Um, In Acts 21.20, we read that there was um, times of trouble in the church in Jerusalem. And verse 18, we read, The day following Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Now that gives an indication that there are many thousands. The actual Greek word means tens of thousands. Tens of thousands believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And these believers, converted Jews, were also zealous of the law. They were keen to uphold the law of Moses. So from a time where Saul was persecuting the church and when Stephen was stoned, it appears that after his conversion there was a period of of peace and prosperity for the church. And Acts 21 intimates that tens of thousands believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a tremendous event that was, the preaching there on the day of Pentecost, souls gathered in, the persecution, and through that persecution we see the church prospering. But then another persecution arises, um, just after Festus died, he died in around about AD 63, and under the high priest Annas, he was a priest who favoured the Sadducees, the Sadducees as you know, did not believe in the resurrection. And they were concerned, the Sanhedrin were concerned of all these tens of thousands of Christians as they attended the temple worship. So that's where they met, synagogue or in the temple. And these Hebrew Christians was, suffered a, a period of persecution from their own brethren, the Jews. And they persecuted them for they believed They were transgressors of the law. They were no longer holding the law of Moses. But to a certain extent, that was true. And there, as you know, the book of Acts is a a book which speaks of a period of transition between the old and new covenant. But there was this tremendous influence of the Christians amongst the Jewish people. And that was a concern for the Sanhedrin and for those in authority. But they felt that their religion, the Jewish religion, was being undermined and being attacked. So they unleashed a period of persecution upon the church of Jesus Christ. We know some were stoned. Some were imprisoned. They they sought to um, bring laws and regulations into the Christian homes. But they couldn't do that 
in their private home. So they made things extremely difficult for the Christian church in the sense that they were no longer able to attend the temple's rituals and sacrifices. The only condition they were able to do that was if they confessed their unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ, denied the faith. Unless they gave up their faith in Jesus Christ, they were not allowed to enter into the temple. They were banished from the altar or sacrifice. They were banished from the priestly rituals. They were banished from the house of Jehovah. That was a sore irritation to the people of God. Do you imagine that if the government said to you tomorrow, but you're not to attend church anymore, what would you do? What would your reaction be? That day is coming. We're looking all around us and we're seeing the government bringing in laws and regulations. There are pressure groups. Uh, Jackie read out a news item on her phone this afternoon. Uh, the Humanist Society want to ban the use of the word repentance. Repentance. These are the pressure groups we face. And these people here, these dear Jewish believers, they faced many hardships. Bearing in mind that they've been brought up, educated by their families, to attend worship, to attend the means of grace, and to have those privileges taken away from them was a sore hardship. And we can scarcely imagine the pain that this was to the people. They were no longer children of the covenant. They were excluded. They were cut off. If they denied Christ, they would be gathered in. If they denied the Messiah. So friends, this was a severe test for them. They accepted Jesus the Messiah as the Old Testament predicted. He would come and suffer and die for the people. And now, as the people of God who accept Jesus the Messiah are now banished by the people who are looking for the Messiah. This was a sore pain for the people of God. So Hebrews is written to encourage them to stand fast, not to give up, not to give in to the pressure and to the authorities' demands that they repent of their faith. So this exhortation here in Hebrews is to see there's a greater glory. The precincts and the building of a temple and all the spectacular worship and the sacrifice was a great glory in the eyes of the people of God. And yet the writer of the Hebrews wants them to see there, there is a greater glory. There are greater things, spiritual things, which they need to comprehend. There are greater glories in, in the new covenant. New covenant which tonight we will celebrate around this table. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. So these people would be cut off. It was a severe test 
for their faith. Could they put up with it? Would they give in? Some did. Hence he says, forsake not the meeting together with one another, as is the want of some in you. They felt that pressure, and they gave up meeting because of the pressure from the authorities, pressure from the family. We see this in Asia. We see this in Sri Lanka. Those who are converted, um, family pressure is immense upon them. They do not want their loved ones to become Christians, so they apply family pressure. Being, you can't come to weddings. You can't come to parties. You can't come to a funeral house when a loved one passes away. You can only attend these events if you repent and come back to mother, come back to Hinduism. That's how they see Hinduism. Hinduism is their mother. Unless you repent, you're cut off. And it's a sore trial for the people of God. That's why we pray for them, particularly those who've been baptized recently, that God would hold them from the pressures which family concert upon other family members. These are real problems for the people of God. So the, the writer to the Hebrews exhorts these Christians to see a greater glory in the new covenant. You see, their problem was it's a question of Jewish citizenship. Should they give up or should they press on? to be excluded from temple worship, who's to be excluded from the household of faith. So in order to establish and comfort these Christians in this time of temptation, the apostle unfolds the glory of the, of the new covenant. And uh, as God permits, as we go through this study, we will see that. He speaks of these, these greater things that they have in Christ, that we have in Christ. They felt a loss of what they did have to what they have now. So a number of times in this epistle, he reminds them of what they have now. The tangible proofs, tangible doctrines, tangible promises. Yes, we have lost those certain privileges, but they're greater ones, more glorious promises, more glorious realities to be found in Christ and in him alone. So he reminds them time and time again what they have. And what they have is what we have. We, we have this glorious access to the Father. We no longer need to go through a priest Hence, we despise the Roman Catholic Church because you cannot approach God and you go through the priests and through the sacraments. That's not what the Bible teaches us. We have access, glorious access, to God's throne through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege and what a blessing is the people of God we have. So he writes this epistle to establish them, to Cause them to stand steadfast, to stand firm in the day of their persecution. He seeks, right here at the beginning of his epistle, to confirm and seal the doctrine which was held by all Hebrews, but unto them have been committed the oracles of God. 
That was an important doctrine to the Jewish people. That God had spoken to them exclusively. All the other nations had their gods, but their gods were made of wood and stone. They were idols. They were false gods. And yet to the Jewish people, in God's sovereign choosing of the people of Israel, he revealed to them who he was. And he wants to confirm them in that truth. That they were not giving away what God has spoken in the past. But they were gaining even more. So in Romans 3.2, Paul speaks there that the oracles of God were committed to the Jews. So it's necessary to remind them that the God who spoke to their fathers was now speaking to them in a voice of the Son. And that's the main emphasis of these first opening verses of Hebrews. He wants to remind them that the Father, God the Father, is the author of revelation in both the New and Old Testament. And in that revelation, the revelation is of the Messiah. The Messiah is the substance and center of the revelation found in both. And that's what he wants to emphasize to these Hebrew Christians. That's what God wants to emphasize to us tonight. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the substance and center of God's revelation. So, verse 1, we read, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners in times past spake by the prophets. We accept that's, that's quite a bland statement, isn't it? We're, we're used to that sort of statement. But can you imagine the impact it had upon these people? It should have an impact upon us. We're so used to the idea that God speaks to us through the Bible. So this is the first point the apostle wants to make to these people. God has spoken. Why? Because he's a God of love. He's a God who wants to communicate to his people. When he created Adam and Eve, he created them sinless, Imperfection. And yet the serpent comes into the garden there and tempts and they fall and they sin. And they discover they're naked. And as was the want of the Lord God in the cool of a day, he came to have fellowship with his creation. And as he comes into that garden, where are they? They're hiding. They're hiding. God has that desire to have communion with his creation, with his people. And God says to Adam and Eve, where art thou? Where art thou? They were afraid, for they were naked. Who told you that you were naked? You see, God has this desire to communicate, to reveal himself through his word. And since that day... That communication has been broken. It's been soiled. So the, the apostle, again, is, is making this point. 
which should be amazing. It is an amazing point. Think of the grandeur and the majesty of that simple declaration. God has spoken. It's living, and loving God must speak. He speaks tonight. He speaks to our hearts and to our souls. He speaks words of comfort. He reveals himself in all his glory and splendor and majesty. He's a God who is not silent. He's a God who communicates. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past. He didn't have to speak. didn't have to reveal himself. But as his nature, as his love to his creation, the gods or the philosophers are silent. The gods of Hinduism are silent. They don't say a word. Buddha is silent. He can't speak. He can't communicate. He has lips, but he don't speak. He has ears, but he cannot hear. His eyes, but he cannot see. All these gods of man's imagination and of man's craft and skill to fashion a god in their own image or the likeness of beasts of the field. These gods cannot speak. They're silent. But our God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he spake in times past unto our fathers by the prophets. Friends, this is a very simple declaration, but it's so profound and so deep. This is, this is our God speaking. Who, who are we? We're nobodies. And yet he speaks to us. He's, he spake to the Old Testament fathers. He spoke in diverse ways and means. He spake in dreams and vision. <clears throat> he spoke by prophets. A prophet is one who has been appointed and sent with a message from God. And in the Old Testament, as you know, there were many false prophets. Those who came with words of comfort, of encouragement, but were false prophets. And we know that because the Bible tells us so. And there are many false prophets today, friends. Who declare they have a, a new revelation from God. A prophet is one who has been chosen by God with a specific task, a specific word. And that has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the prophet. He is the one who reveals the Father to us in word and deed and action. So when we speak here of those, those prophets, they had imperfections. They weren't perfect. And their imperfections were numerous. And they were many. They lived in different times. No one prophet had a full revelation. One prophet would speak a word here. Another one would add to it some years later, centuries later. There was this pattern of prophecy, and there were many. We didn't fully understand their message, and they lived at different times. They spoke to us through symbol and picture. You remember Cain and Abel. We see Abel there as a shepherd, 
And we see there in that story that the shepherd had to die. It's a figure of Christ. The shepherd had to die. Enoch, who was not, you see, the son of God who had to rise again. Enoch was taken. And we see Noah saving a people, a few people. But we see a saviour in Noah who saves many people. So you see these, these pictures speak of, a, of the Messiah, but only part of his attribute. We put them together, we see a greater picture. So Abel, the prophet, the, the one who was a shepherd, is sacrificed because his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Enoch translated, taken into the very presence of God. And Noah, saving a people for God's glory. Another imperfection was, but it was in diverse manners, in dreams, in visions, in symbols. They were men of different temperament and tone. Some were strong, some were timid. Another imperfection was, they were sinful men. Remember Isaiah, his vision. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a sinful man. He was a man who recognized his sinfulness in the presence of the glory of God. Yet he was a prophet. He was a sinful, and all the prophets, they were sinful. They had different temperaments. All of them, all of these men were full of infirmities. Another imperfection was they did not possess the spirit constantly. The word came to him from time to time. They did not possess the word all the time. It wasn't like a flowing river. The spirit would come upon a man. As we saw this morning with Nathan, he comes to David. Thus says the Lord. He wasn't coming to David all the time saying, thus says the Lord. It wasn't that continuous flow of revelation for David. Only as the spirit moved upon the prophet, did the prophet speak. Another imperfection of these dear brothers was that they did not understand the height and depth of their message. They didn't fully comprehend the height and depth of the message that God laid upon them. They had part understanding. They spoke for their time, and for their day, and for their generation. But they also spoke for another generation, for another time, the time of Messiah. They were limited in their abilities and in their understanding. And another imperfection was they all testified, like John the Baptist, I am not the light. I am not the light. They were only that finger post. I was travelling down uh, the motorway the other evening, and the inevitable roadworks are up at that time of night, and there's the arrow pointing, get over, get over. Next lane, get over, get over. It's a finger, that's all they were doing. They're pointing to the Saviour. Directing men to the light. That was their commission. That was their duty. And by God's grace, and by God's enabling, they were faithful men to their calling. So God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto 
the fathers by the prophets have in his last days spoken unto us by his son. What a contrast. Look at the contrast. Look at that word son. It's in the singular. The son. The son of God. The prophets were many. The son is one. One son. God having these last days spoken unto us by his son. Let that sink into your heart and mind. The son of God has come and spoken. Revealed himself. Revealed the father to us. The son. The one and only son. He is the eternal Son of God. The blessed second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the Son who's condescended in that covenant there in eternity past to come and to reveal the Father's heart and mind. To reveal the Father to his chosen people. It's through the Son we know God the Father. It's through his revelation through his perfect sinless life, but we know the Father. It's through the Son, the eternal, only begotten Son of God. The prophets were many, the Son is one. The prophets were servants of the Lord God, Jehovah. The Son is the Lord. The Son is the Lord. Dear friends, that should encourage our hearts. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son. He's our Lord and our Saviour. He's not just our Saviour. He's a Lord. It's a teaching today that he is just Saviour and not Lord. How can he be? He has purchased us with his blood. He has sacrificed his life for his people. He is Saviour. And he is Lord. We are not our own. He has brought us with a price. We are his by right purchase. He has come to the slave market and set us free. He's paid the price with his blood. The prophets were servants. The son is the Lord. The prophets were temporary. They came and they died. And God raised up another. He came and he died. But the Son, the Son, friends, he abides forever. He abides forever. He is the eternal Son of God. His throne is established forever. He is sitting at God's right hand forever. He's sitting with that work completed, finished work. And he abides forever. And this is our saviour, friends. The prophets were imperfect. They were sinful men, as you and I. But look at the son. He is perfect, even as the father is perfect. No blemish, no spot. The perfect matchless son of God he 
He's perfect in his character, in his works, and in his ways. He is perfection personified. He is the perfect sacrifice. We know that for the Jews to bring a sacrifice, that sacrifice had to be perfect, without blemish. But not to be handicapped in any sense. It was to be perfect. And as the Son of God, in his perfection, is that eternal sacrifice for his people. So God the Father accepts him as that perfect sacrifice, that one who purchases his people. His reflection of the Father's character. If you've seen me, he said to the disciples, you've seen the Father. And the prophets were guilty. Guilty of sin. Guilty of corruption. But the Son is pure and able to purify those that are full of sin. It's the wonder of the, of the gospel, isn't it, friends? They were guilty, but the Son is pure. And he has the ability to purify those who are sinners, to forgive our sin, to wash us clean, to make us white as snow. This is the work that the Saviour was pointed to do. And he'd done it well. And the Father was pleased, accepted that sacrifice. No, friends, there's none as pure as our Saviour, none as glorious as he is. He is perfection. And the prophets finally point to the future. They pointed to one who would come. And the people expectant, they longed for his coming. They looked for his coming. They prayed for his coming. And the prophets continually to point the people of God to the Saviour to the Messiah. They point to the future. The Son points to himself. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, Christians here tonight, we can glory in this Saviour. We can glory in his perfection. We can glory in his majesty, in his purity. We can glory in the Son of God and we should glory as the people in Hebrews gloried that God at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets having these last days spoken unto us by his Son. His Son. Are you hearing the words of a Son? Are you obeying the words of a Son? Are you obedient to the words of the Son of God. It's a high calling. And by God's grace, these Hebrew Christians heard that call and responded to it and were blessed as they focused upon the Son of God who has revealed the Father to us. Blessed be his name. Amen. In 125, please. <clears throat> Immortal honours rest on Jesus' head. My God, my portion, and my living bread. Thank you. <clears throat> <clears throat>